Alright guys, welcome back to the Invisible Practice Podcast. Today we have an um, amazing magician, a really nice pal, good friend of mine, Eric Richardson. How, how are you, Eric? I'm fine. Thanks for having me on your podcast. This is cool. Cool. Like, like I really wanted to talk with you because like we, um, at the podcast, like I like to go a bit deeper into magic. And when we met last time, like you gave me your little booklet, which I think was like something for the session, right? Like uh, the con Yeah, it was a giveaway for the session. Yeah. Last was it, no, not, I guess it wasn't last year. Was it? It was, was it the year before? I think it was a while ago. Cause I remember seeing it already at Aliash's place like two years ago, I think. Yeah. That's probably about right. Cause I don't, I don't think the, the session happened last year live mm. because of the, um, because of the pandemic, but I'm not sure. I can't remember exactly. <laughs> that was the last giveaway I gave away before, really, before, um, the pandemic really started throwing a wrench into into everyone's plans, you know? So, yeah. Hopefully there'll be a session this year. We'll see. I hope so. <laughs> I'm hoping to, I, I really miss it. So yeah, I gave you that um, at the session a couple years ago. Well, not at the session, you gave this to me in France. Uh, oh, was, yeah. that's right, when we met, that's mm -hmm. right. I, it was from the session, but I gave it to it you was in from France. from the session, right. yeah, yeah. Right. I saw it at Aliyah's okay. place and I was like, this looks interesting. I'm forward to reading this. And I asked you once, hey, do you sell it? You were like, nope. But you were, yeah. uh, you were so kind to give me one when I came. Uh, oh, it's my pleasure. And um, yeah, that's right. That's why I'm a little bit confused because it didn't feel like that long ago when I gave it to you. But it's it um, because it wasn't. But I gave it away at the session, uh, you know, because uh, a couple years before that. So anyway, yeah, that's... Um, yeah, that's a little booklet I gave, and it was had a, you know some cards with it for a for a routine, and then it had the little essays mm. at the beginning, and um, so I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, but like it's it's not something I would see myself perform because I'm like, and that's that's also at the same time what I love about it, you know, because it's uh, it's something that I love to see you perform. It's like very characteristic to how you perform, and also like from the essays, you already get sort of an understanding like you are a person that's like, I think the first quote is like artist bio autobiographical or something. Is one of the yeah. That's a Frederico Fellini uh, mm. quote. And, um, that, yeah, all art is autobiographical. Yeah. And exactly. I, I saw that quote when I was in high school and it stuck with me, stuck with me ever since. And so, yeah, the first essay in that book is about me coming to terms with that trying to come to terms with that quote and like is it true is all our autobiographical it's a pretty bold statement you know and thinking through that and my conclusions from that are still you know i still use that as a mm. as the guide for for my for my own artistic expression uh through magic um, and other things as well but um but yeah that's uh i think it's a good quote I think it's a, I think so too, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it was, but I'm, yeah, I don't, of course, when you put something out like that, especially when you give it to people, they didn't buy it or, or go, I want this, you know, um, when it comes to the, the particular trick. So I'm never surprised when someone goes, oh, I like it, but it's not me or whatever. It's like, well, of course, you know, but. Yeah, um, that's, that's what I like the most about it because that's at the same time, if, a trick is like something that everyone can do and everyone would enjoy it. It's also sort of generic, right? Because, or maybe it's like right. very versatile because everyone can give their own twist to it. But I mm -hmm. also like things which are very peculiar and very particular. And this is very particular for you 
because right. I remember you explaining to me how you were studying about the witch hounds and about alchemy and like these different types of things. And it's mm-hmm. really visible within this trick. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, yeah. And the reason I included it was not because I thought everyone was going to go out and start doing it. Although I'm, I'm happy if someone does, of course, and that would be cool. But it was more to just provide an, an example um, from my own repertoire of what I was talking about in the essays. I'm like, and here's a way where I applied these thoughts mm-hmm. to my own, um, you know, my own desire to express myself artistically and autobiographically to some degree in, in the magic. And here's a way to do that. And this is a way that I have approached it, but there's of course other ways, but, but I used a historic event of the witch hunt, Salem, Salem witch trials as a way to kind of express something that happened in my own life um, in a magical way without directly talking about what happened to me and my family in a very hard situation. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's a way to talk about those things and, uh, and uh, ex- share them, but in a, in a different context that's not so close to me you know, and my particular story. Um, and I think, I think that's one way that I've tried to approach some of the autobiographical, you know, trying to express my own self in my magic is I found that finding sometimes pinning something to a his, relating it to a historical event, an interesting historical event has been a kind of a productive way to do that. And, um, but it's only one way, of course, you can be very open about, I'm going to tell you a story about my life. And that would also be obviously directly autobiographical, but. Um. <laughs> yeah, but it's a good, it's a good way to point as well, I suppose, because now you can also say, well, what's like the main concept feeling or core behind this idea mm-hmm. and how to transfer this into a story or into a presentation. So you, yeah. like, I think even if you're talking about coincidence, you don't have to direct, if, if you do like a coincidental trick, like do as I do, for example, or if you uh, perform uh, luck, like sympathetic 13 instead of as magic mm-hmm. as a coincidence effect, then I think with those things, you don't have to talk directly about coincidence, but you can still point towards it. Right. Like, for example, one thing I like to say is, uh, hey, let's create a coincidence or rather a paradox. And, and the reason why I say rather a paradox is because coinc- coincidence by nature is like coincidental. It's like you're not expecting to do it. So right. if you are consciously creating coincidence, it's still a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And well, it's um, something kind of related to that is, uh, you know, tricks where, uh, yeah, it's like the, if someone's really being critical of it, if you have someone name a card and it's the only one face up in the deck, you know, you could play that as a coincidence, but you know, no one's probably going to believe that. Or if they do, it's okay. It's one out of 52, you know, and uh, that's not that, I mean, it's impressive, but it's, they named any card. It's the only one face up. But I think what the unspoken part of that is, and you don't have to speak it because you know it's powerful with an audience. But I think the unspoken part of that is, is the fact that they know that you are doing something for them and it is supposed to work. Mm. And so that 
they know that this is is different and just oh oh it wasn't that lucky because you're standing in front of them and you're getting paid to do a show or the context is that you're performing and not going i hope i get lucky during this show you know i hope i hope all my my stuff works out and um so i think people know that and i think that's I think it's that those unspoken things. I don't think everything has to be laid out because I think you can think, is this something that an audience will pick up or understand on their own? And uh, I think you can do that with coincidence types of tricks, but then also tricks that, um, you know, are maybe even supposed to be predictions or ones like, Mm -hmm. I knew it would be the right one. Statistically, one out of 52 maybe isn't, the most impressive thing, but the context makes it impressive because exactly. you're doing a show and you can't just go into a show and go, I hope I, I'm going to start this thing and one out of 52 times it'll work. Maybe. Yay. You know, that'd be, a, you can't do that as a performer. So I, audiences know that and they're just like, wow, that's, that's crazy. And, but I've, I've thought about playing around with like actually spelling that out for an audience, like really putting that in the presentation. Really? But, um, but I never have yet, but um, it'd be interesting to kind of walk through that with them. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I don't know if there was an entertaining way to do it. I thought it'd be kind of cool to oh, have them like think through what they, what's kind of going on in their subconscious, but that bring it to the forefront and be like, you know, this could be a coincidence, but then I am getting paid. Mm to do this show so you know and then they'll be like oh right or something I, that's not a very mm. good presentation but something along those lines i think yeah, but it's interesting also, also like what you touched on is like you can reframe an effect right so we're going to instance but with we're not with everything with the either you can't usually but with some other things like um let's say like an invisible back or a card is in your wallet you could present all of those things like a coincidence um like a prediction right so before the show, mm-hmm. I turn over one card in the deck or before the show, I put one card in my wallet, whatever. Same as with the, um, um, with sucker effect. You, you can present the sucker effect as a sucker effect, but the interesting thing is a lot of sucker effects inherently can also be that the magic is happening to the magician. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's prefers, like the magician isn't aware of this happening, but all of a sudden this thing happens to him and he, doesn't know why he's like the happy victim in the story yeah yeah that's those are those are fun when you have the magician in trouble or the something's happening to the magician and he doesn't know about of course i think the audience knows that you're just you're just playing but that's part of the fun they can as long as they they can enjoy it and be a part of that, oh, that's funny that we're pretending that the magician doesn't know what's going on and they can get in, get into the act of it with you. That can be, mm. you know, it definitely, it can change the, change the, uh, the texture of the show. You know, mm. if you have something like that in it, I think would be cool. Cause it's just very different type. Instead of the direct, I'm going to show you something and amaze you and be a little more like, we're all just having a fun time here and we're going to pretend like I don't know what's going on. Yeah. And it's also like instant drama, like immediately there's a conflict, Mm -hmm. which then becomes interesting because how is he going to solve it? Right. Yeah. And as long as, you know, I think the audience probably really knows that you're not really in trouble. Um, but that's part of the fun of it. Exactly. Yeah. 
So yeah, yeah. Although I've never, I've never done, uh, I shouldn't say I've never done any tricks that are actually like that, because that's not true. But I don't tend to do tricks like that. I think I've experimented with it in the past, but I can't think of any shows like actual real shows that I've put together where I've ever had a trick in it where it was uh, magicians in trouble, oh no, kind of kind of thing. Um, now that's not true in the kids shows. Oh yeah. In kids shows, uh, but for adults um, and for young adults through adults, I don't think I've ever put together a show like that. But it's really fun with kids. I mean, mm. it would, there's no reason not to do it with adults. I just never have done it. And I just have to think about why I've never done it. I don't have an answer for that. I just have well, to think like about why I've never really done that with, with adults. And I've certainly never created a magic trick like that mm. um, that I would envision doing for adults. So, but yeah, for kids, it's super fun because they get all screaming and they, <laughs> they don't, you know, they, they I, actually, I think kids believe that you don't know that something's mm. happened or that you've made a mistake. I think they really, they buy into it and they get, they get, you know, very vocal about it, which is really, yeah, <laughs> which is really fun. You know, you can get them screaming like crazy over that stuff, which is, which is part of the fun of the show. But, but maybe yeah. that's also the reason why you haven't done it for adults, right? Because they know. Yeah, they just don't scream the same way. <laughs> No, I don't know. I don't know why I've never done it for adults. I'm gonna have to actually sit around and, and you know think about that for a little bit. I've never really thought about it. Um, mm. Do you do you perform effects like that for your? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Adult yeah. audiences. Yeah. Um, I perform uh, my suit operation like this. Yeah. Um, okay. Because in the suit cool. operation, like you very usually have, um, like in my presentation, at one point, like I produce a card like sort of in the air. But that's then the wrong card. But I don't know because I can only see the back, and I very cocky just throw it down and I go on. So then that creates that moment where the audience knows, like, oh, he fucked up, and I don't know. And then at the end, I find out. Yeah. And of course, when I find out, I also done the switch already. So, um, then all the cards change from spades to hearts, and then the yeah. card matches again. And I also do like Fernand's um, for matching the cards. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is a very good trick, I believe. But the interesting thing I found is like Tommy Wonder has this essay where he describes that he's not a fan of this type of effect because the magician is sort of putting up his middle finger against the audience because he's fully like he's fully aware in that moment that he's not screwing up, but he's making them believe it. And then at the end, like he solves it. But if that's like interpreted in the wrong way, it feels like like you're betraying your audience. Yeah, yeah. Which I think it depends think, on the degree yeah. how you play it. Because very often, like with the matching the cards, it's like perfect, like perfect feeling. People sort of like, they feel a bit bad or they're a bit happy. Like, yes, he fucked up finally. And then, then I just play it like, oh, fuck. Um, and I try to solve it. Mm-hmm. But once in a live show, I genuinely fucked up in my setup for the uh, suit operation. And I had to solve it in a different way. And then I used that energy of the bumminess of the genuine fuck up for that ending because I thought, Oh, I'm going to be a good actor. I'm going to use like the genuine <laughs> feeling for it. And then I watched the show back on video and I was like, fuck that. This one was much too much. Like even I, when I watched it, I believed I genuinely fucked up because I fucked up and then it was solved. It was like, oh man, this was such a big bum out. And then it was solved. And it felt like, ah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I, you know, and as you were talking about that, I was thinking actually there is one way that I've, 
I've used, I think pretty much any, you know, pretty much every card ma <laughs> magician doing card magic has probably done it at some point. I, I don't think I have it in, built into any of my routines, like real routines, but, you know, if you just, um, you know, sometimes doing just some casual magic tricks or something, I, you know, will do what everyone does or you, you get the card out, you know, you've produced the card or whatever. Mm -hmm. They don't know what it is that you look at it and your face goes, you know, and everyone goes, oh, and then you turn it over and go, no, it's right. You know, and <laughs> that's that same idea, you know, where you're like, but they don't, you know, they're just trusting your reaction and you just, and it, but it's very quick and it's very light and it's, you know, you're just playing. Yeah. With but I them. think it's also it's, a bit like fun. Like I'm, I'm, I'm screwing with you, you know? Yeah. Right. And it, it's over so fast, you know, it's not like you sit there and look at it and go, Oh gosh, you oh, become depressed. Oh yeah. And you're, well, you know, you can't ham it up for too long. It's just a very short little, like, no, that's right. You know, and that can, that can be fun. And it's, it lets people off the hook really fast and they know you're playing with them and it's just silly, you know, but, but that's the same, same idea. Friendly, friendly tone to it, I guess. But I mean, if you go too far into it, like into believing you really screwed up and you're bummed out. Yeah. That, well, that's a bad place to put your audience anyway, because, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. I, maybe there are some audiences out there that really want to see magicians screw up, but for the most part, I think in my experience, and probably most people's experience, the audiences don't really want you to mess up. They, oh, yeah. they want to see a good magic trick. They want to see something that'll blow their mind or be cool or funny. You know, obviously, if they're seeing magic, they want it to some level be magical. And, um, you know, you messing up is not very magical. So unless, un you know, un unless those people are your friends, then they really. Live yeah, 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 yeah. Right. But, you know, I think that I think in general, if you have a good presentation and a good personality and you have done the things to make the audience like you and mm -hmm. um, want to watch you, they want to watch you succeed and they want to be a part of that. They want to see magic. They want to experience magic. And, you know, they don't. In my experience, I don't feel like most audiences really want to see the magician screw up so they can laugh at him. Mm. Having said that, I've seen some magicians throughout, you know, my time, thankfully not very many, but, you know, magicians who get people up on stage and they're just an absolute jerk mm. and they make fun of the person, uh, their physical appearance, the way they talk, they, they just anything you know maybe people in the audience laugh but the person is not laughing and i've seen i've seen probably more than once really like audiences kind of turn on the magician because they're being such a jerk to the to the audience mm -hmm. as a whole or or to the person on stage and i think at that point the audience doesn't like that person and would be more than happy to watch them fail <laughs> because <laughs> they've decided i don't like you you're yeah. not a nice person and this is kind of miserable and the one thing that would make it less miserable is watch you fail um that's a bad place to be as a performer but oh, yeah. you know i've seen performers go there for the cheap laugh and um it's i always find it really tragic i think it's a horrible way to treat your audience and a horrible way to present magic and present yourself because i don't mm. think people you know why would 
people like a person who gets up and insults people in front of 300 other people. That's just a really horrible thing. Um, you don't even want someone to see it, to do it to one person. So how would you want right, to do it to right, 300? Right, right, right. Yeah, and you've, you, especially you know, you're taking advantage. The power disparity is, is pretty great too. I mean, you're taking a person, you know what you're doing, you're the one who's commanding the stage and you bring them up and uh, you're, there's already a power disparity and a, mm -hmm. and a thing like that. And then you're gonna abuse them verbally or embarrass them. I just think it's a bad, bad, it's a so, bad look. It's a fucked up <laughs> thing to do, especially just for a laugh, you know? Yeah, yeah, and um, unfortunately, I can think of a handful of people without even, without even really trying hard that I've seen in my life. Um, some of them known, and some of them local magicians that no one in the larger mm -hmm. magic community would know, but um, who do that kind of thing. You know, and it's, I always find it very uncomfortable, very tragic to, to, to see that because it's just, yeah, they're getting laughs from a certain group of the audience, but it's at some, it's, it's at their assistance, their volunteers expense. Mm. And uh, just, I think it's unprofessional and I think it's a bad, bad look for the performer ultimately. Mm. I mean, I would never, if I saw someone doing that, I would never hire them to come to do something at my event you know, no, definitely. Um, so I don't know. I just, and maybe not everyone agrees with me on that. I guess not. because there are people that still do it that way, but, um, and I, you know, plenty of people have spoken out against it. I'm certainly not the first, but from my own experience, man, I hate that. How did we get on that? I don't know. But anyway, it's one of my pet peeves. I hate that. <laughs> I hate seeing people mistreated when they, when they're at a magic show. I think it's just, the antithesis of what a magic show is supposed to be yeah but isn't it much more beautiful to see someone come on stage being very vulnerable like not really being comfortable not knowing what to expect and then for a performer to uplift that person to completely forget that they're in front of 300 people yeah just be pure and in that moment yeah that's it's it's respectful to the person it's respectful to the rest of the audience and it's treating people with humanity, you know, and, um, and I think it is, it opens up your performance to, to beautiful possibilities, whereas the other way closes them. People decide they don't like you mm. or they don't want to help you. Um, and that doesn't help you perform your magic, but I, I don't know why people do it. Honestly, I don't know why people go to that. I guess the, my only guess really is that people go to that because they don't, well, maybe they're just not nice people, but, but, or maybe it has to do more with, they haven't thought through anything better to say. Mm. And so maybe it comes down to laziness. It's easy to insult someone for a laugh. It's harder to come up with a good presentation that's clever and interesting and it's just much easier to make fun of people i, think that, I don't know I think that depends on the person you are because for me that's a very hard thing to do <laughs> yeah yeah well yeah for some people it, it's it's uh, easier to in a social situation just do that I, I don't know i don't know what all the reasons are i just know i i just really hate to see it when it happens but <laughs>
in case you can't tell. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I have I have a little bit passionate about that one. Yeah, but <laughs> but um, that's okay. But Ladies anyway, and watch out next year. Eric Richardson's new book. Don't be a jerk on stage. <laughs> Don't be a jerk on stage. That would be a good one. Thankfully, though, I really though. I think that most performers aren't that way or don't, don't do it. If they do it, they're there. It's not the main part of their act, at least. And maybe they're doing it out of this insecure moment or they, they have a situation where they don't know what to do and they just fall back on some uh, piece of like crass kind of comedy or something. But most performers I've seen, and maybe this is true for you, I think I think that that message is out there, and oh yeah, most, yeah, like most, most performers, performers I see don't do that. You know, most of them are more stuck with like uh, stock lines than with being a jerk. So it's yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, the stock lines. Um, you know, we've all used them. <laughs> I'm going to pretend I'm not guilty of it. And I'll probably use some again in the future at some point. Stock lines, of course. <laughs> but you try to, I try to write my own scripts mm -hmm. and to, to um, create my own presentations for even very standard common effects as much as possible. Um, I'm not saying that there's nothing in my routine that's pretty much like I kind of say what the trick came with, you know, the, mm. certainly there's some things like that and probably everyone's repertoire, but I try hard to write my own scripts and come up with my own presentations and I enjoy doing it, but I think it also is part of that. How do I make this mine? How do I mm. express if all art is truly autobiographical, like Fellini said, then I am saying something about myself, no matter what. If all I ever do is use stock lines and insult people, I'm telling people something about myself. It is indeed autobiographical. Mm. And so, so what do, and even if, even if it's completely a, uh, even if it's completely a fake character you have on stage, it's telling people two things. One, it's, it's, you're informing your character by how you act. So at least in that sense, they're relating to that autobiographical fake character. But it really, at the end of the day, if they know it's, they're going to know it's a fake character at some point because they know you're an actor on, on your own stage and you're doing a very specific kind of thing that maybe it'd be hard to believe you would do in real life. Mm. So they know you have a character, but that still tells them something about you that you're the kind of person who could create a character and do mm. those kinds of things. So even then, there is something autobiographical about it. You know, because you are telling people something about who you are through the character you create. Right. Um, and so I think Fellini is right. I think that all art is on some level autobiographical. Sometimes it can be very blatant. Sometimes it's more subtle. But I think that our presentations do say something about us. So mm -hmm. if that's true, then I want to be at least a little bit thoughtful about what I'm communicating about myself through my magic my mm. presentations and those kind of things so um yeah i think that uh that writing your own scripts is you know there's a lot of benefits to it but i think that's mm. one of them is like for the for that particular type of thing what am i going to present to my audience about myself well you know you've kind of got to write your own script if you you know 
to uh, to be able to pull that off. And uh, that's that's I think that's a really good thing. I tell you what, my favorite books right now are mm. uh, the Peter McCabe scripting magic, and then mm. Vanishing Ink put out the two the new, second volume. Mm. And if there's anyone listening to this podcast who hasn't checked out those books, I don't, I don't, not friends with Pete McCabe. I'm not, you know, I don't get anything for pushing his books at all. Uh, I'm just talking about them because I think they're just wonderful. And I think if someone is interested in writing scripts, if you've been writing scripts, it will only help you get better. If you've never really done it before, it will give you every, pretty much everything you need to, to have the confidence to start doing it and doing it well. Mm. So I, I don't, um, I just can't recommend those books enough. If I was, if I had like five books to recommend to people, those would be, I guess I'd have to count them as two of them because now there's two volumes. So I'd still have yeah, three books left one, over, but yeah. <laughs> what? You can count them as one. You just said. Yeah. Okay. The I'll count them as one. Scripting, someone... scripting magic. Uh, one and two is one of my five books. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Just like the Tor 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 Bell course in magic is one of my five. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, that was, those are the first real, I mean, yeah, those are the first books I really studied when I start really started getting into magic. Really? And uh, yeah, I would, I had just started my first job. And so I'd get my paycheck, which wasn't much because I was working at an appliance store, dusting off their appliances and moving stuff around, and mm. <laughs> building, building, this is in Florida and building, you know, like TV, TV racks for old ladies and stuff because I couldn't build them themselves, so, you know, doing all that. And uh, so I wasn't making much money. I wasn't working there too much just after high school, you know, at the end of the day, whatever. But Every every week, well, not every week, every month, I'd get my paycheck and I would take a little bit of it. Well, pretty much most of it, because I don't think it was that much. But I would take it and I would get another copy of uh, Tar Bell from the mat. There's a local magic shop where I lived. I was able to, you know, go to, which is pretty rare to have a mm. brick and mortar magic shop. And this was in Sarasota and Bradenton down in Florida. And um, there's a magic shop there that had been there for a while. And I would go in and get the next next volume of Tar Bell with my paycheck until I had the whole set. And I would spend that month studying it, you know, and then I would get the next one. And, um, I, you know, I still look at those, still consult. Those are amazing. Mm. There's so much good magic in them. Some of it's out, outdated and a little bit odd. And there's a couple things that are embarrassing in it. Um, probably racist even um not probably they are Mostly, um so yeah. there are some things in there that are just like ooh, uh, that's, that's not good but but for the most part as a whole they're they're amazing <laughs> but um yeah anyway i don't that wouldn't include those in my top five books though that i would recommend to someone though they would, it would be something to recommend but mm. i probably have others that i'd recommend more But. Yeah, but I mean, like, what I what I love about Torbell, like, I have all of them because I got like a really good deal on them once, like all of them for 120 bucks, I think. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good deal. That's yeah. a good deal. Um, but what I love about them is like I have never, like, I haven't read them that much, and not from cover to cover, but whenever I'm doing research about magic or about mm -hmm. a particular effect. But also, I wanted to start the billiard balls, and there's surprisingly little I could find about the billiard balls in like magic yeah. books other than like i know the art of magic has something greater magic obviously has something i believe the fine art of magic also and then like tarbell that's everything on my shelf that has something with yeah it. but already yeah. The, the routine in tarbell with this stuff is like it's not a great routine but 
it's structured in such a way that it's a really good routine to learn all the moves and the basic principles to perform yeah. the effect. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're just an amazing resource. And one of the things about them is that they are, a lot of the things are fully scripted, mm. you know, and not that you would ever use that. <laughs> but, you know, when I was, when I was, you know, younger, and these were some of the first magic books I was experiencing um, and studying, that was really important because what it, what it taught me um, was that, well, it taught me a lot of different things, you know, that script, that, you know, how important a script is, but it showed me the, the, the timing of things, mm. you know, like when you just read a trick and it doesn't have any scripting notes or anything, or even a full script or anything like that, you know, you have to work all that stuff out for yourself and uh, that there's nothing wrong with that. But it, when you're, especially when you're new to magic and you're just mm. learning, that can be really really tough and one of the good things about having examples of fully scripted routines is it, as you're reading through it you're like oh okay the script is helping me accomplish the magic mm. and giving not only reasons for things but time for things to happen mm. and when that thing is going to happen um and the script gives you a framework for always knowing when that thing is going to happen mm. in your routine and being able to plan that out and that move, that secret move or whatever, or the um, um, misdirection, all those things. It's really hard to plan those kinds of things out in any way that's going to make your trick work well if you don't have any sense of the timing of it and mm. You can't, you know, Eugene Berger points this out uh, and I didn't learn, you know, I read it from him later um, when he was talking about it, but I thought, oh yeah, I'd, I'd learned that from Tar Bell, from reading this, mm. from reading the stuff and, and performing some of the routines from in there. And I would start with his written, the written uh, script, you know, at least at the beginning. And, um, but, you know, Eugene Berger points out that he has a story where he was at a magic lecture and he's doing a magic lecture and um, he wanted to talk about um, about different things. And he realized, I can't talk to these magicians about this because, um, you know, we really need to talk about scripting and stuff like that because I can't talk to them about timing, mm -hmm. um, which is what he wanted to talk to them about timing of things. If, if there's no script, you know, and um I think that's that's true. I think that's something I learned from from Tar Bell. It kind of drilled into me. You know, he doesn't really say it that way. Maybe he does somewhere, but um, that kind of idea is certainly there as you go through the work through the tricks, and then you you start getting a sense of that that the timing of things is important, and the script is helping that happen. Mm. And um, so I try to always write my own scripts for my tricks, and that's why I include them in the the. I always, not always, but almost always have a complete script for each trick I write up for a book or for the books I've written or different things. I try to have a complete script. Not that I think that everyone will use my script. I certainly hope they don't, you know, as far, I mean, I try to, what I say when I perform it or a generic version of what I say when I perform mm -hmm. it, you know, close to it at least. Um, and that, but I really include them primarily because I think that's this, you're gonna need to say something here mm. 
because something needs to be said here while this is happening. Mm. And if you don't say something, you won't get the timing right. You won't have it mm. flow right, you know? So if nothing else, at least my script is showing someone, you know, you need to have something to say right here. Something has to happen here, if you know, um, while you're doing whatever it is in the routine. And um, so I always try to include, include that for that reason. Um, I don't really believe anyone's going to ever take my scripts and, and use them for, for their own effects, although they certainly could, but, um, and I don't always include my actual scripts, Just, uh, you know, for my session gift in two years, I'm going to record like an entire DVD with your scripts. <laughs> oh no, oh, that'd be horrible. <laughs> yeah. I, I read some of my scripts from some of my old stuff and you know, like, uh, like we're going to rework it and start performing it again. And I'm like, oh gosh, I just would never, I wouldn't say it that way now. That's not, it's not me, but that's part of the whole, you know, mm -hmm. people change and uh, I'm not 20 anymore. I'm 50 and I just turned 50. And so, you know, I look back at some of the routines, I, scripts I wrote when I was 20 and then go, okay, that's just, I'm not going to say it like that anymore, you know, for whatever reason. It's just it not me. I've, ch I've changed. I've lived. Worrisome if it was the same. Right. Yeah. It'd be kind of weird. Right. I mean, mm. um, so sometimes there are major changes. Sometimes it's just minor little things and, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, that's part of being the auto autobiographical nature of it too. I'm not mm. the same person I was when I was 20. I mean, some ways I, I am, but in other ways I'm not, you know, um, I've experienced a lot of things I hadn't experienced when I was 20. And so I look at the world differently now than I did then. And so if I want it to be my performance to s somehow express who I am now, then it's just, it's going to change, you know, mm. to some degree. And that's an interesting, interesting thing. Um, some, some routines have been more that way than others. I'm like, I just wouldn't, I just wouldn't even perform. Well, I've actually dropped routines like stone cold, dropped them out of my repertoire because I'm like, I just, I don't know how I'd perform that now. And I will never, I would never perform it the way I performed it then. So I'd mm. just be true to myself. I mean, maybe someday I'll figure out a way to perform it, but I'm just not feeling it. And uh, I wouldn't perform it that way anymore. It just wouldn't feel authentic to me anymore so mm -hmm. forget it i'll just find something else so I, i have had a couple not a lot of routines like that but i have had a couple things where i've huh. let them let them go you know mm. um for now at least others have just changed with me like mm. um like uh well a really popular routine of course from eugene berger i mean every every magician knows it lots of magicians do it now because of his influence of course is uh the torn and restored or burnt and restored you know mm -hmm. thread right um and uh i've performed that since i learned it from his book you know way back in the, the 80s mm -hmm. and uh way way back in the 80s good grief um that so sounded so ridiculous. <laughs> sounded so ridiculous. But <laughs> way back in the 80s. But uh, <laughs> when everything um, was still cheap. When everything was cheap, I could go to the, yeah, good grief. So, but that perform, I still have that as I perform that all the time, but my performance for it is not the same as it was mm. back then. I've had several, several different scripts for it, but um, 
but yeah, that's, that's something, that's one trick that I've always kept, but I've been able to change the script as I have changed or my interests have changed or the things I want to do is do are is different. So um, it's interesting. Some things haven't made that kind of cut. Other things have. So, um, it's interesting, but yeah, the scripting magic books, man, they're great. And on top of that, there's some really awesome routines in there too. I mean, there's good magic in those books. If you think it's just a book that, oh, well, I don't read a whole book about some guy telling me how I'm supposed to say things, you know, um, I mean, it's better than that would be, a, that would be kind of maybe a more boring book, but his plenty of examples of how to script different effects and why they were done that way and interviews with people like Eugene Berger, who, mm. you know, arguably is one of the, was, was one of the best best at at writing a script you know um for his effects mm. i mean he's just a, a perfect he's a master at it and studying his magic is is really a, a great one for that uh, the only thing i would say about that too is since i'm on a rant <laughs> is his the new book with larry haas uh the uh the two new new books um you know from beyond and then uh, final secrets the, the final works of Eugene Berger that have been published. Um, those books are great for studying Eugene's scripting and his ability to do it and, and how he was able to do it so well, especially from beyond where Larry Haas goes and Eugene go through in great detail. Um, I think it was the effect greed. Um, it's the effect where the money, the, you know, the, the bills change it's like the you know um he uses the richard Stan sanders version of extreme burn mm. with and the money changes mm. from ones to hundreds or whatever and um uh, but the really interesting thing about that is it larry provides like copies you larry and eugene provide copies of the his script as he was editing it and you can see what eugene was taking out and how he was modifying it and you know eliminating stuff that just didn't need to be there so it was tight and strong mm -hmm. and a powerful script and it's a really great really valuable example of that and there's more of that in both of those books that have just recently come out but um I, those are probably some of my favorite parts of those books actually mm -hmm. is watching that you know and all that examples of the evolution of how that trick was scripted by Eugene it was mm. really cool. Um, so yeah, those, those are good books on scripting, I think. But um, do you write your own? I mean, imagine you, do you actually write down your own scripts or do you sort just of create them like in your head or? They're for me, they're very loose scripts, right? So like when I, when I do close up, most of the time I don't, because I think it's like important to play with the moment and I still sort of have a script or like mm -hmm. a general idea what I want to talk about, but I sort of just feel like, oh, what type of people are this? How do they vibe? How deep can I go with this stuff? You know? Yeah. Uh, but for stage, yeah, definitely. Like I don't write down whole scripts, but I have very loose scripts. So I have like concepts I want to talk about and I know which trick is coming after or before and how to connect these things so that it's like a coherent story, but mm -hmm. I don't script it out word for word. Um, yeah. which is more because I noticed that when I do that, like I sort of focus on it too much. 
and become more like a robot on stage <laughs> rather than being very free uh, which is not a good argument because because my because friend of mine timon krause he says you should script and learn your script perfectly because that allows you to go off script right? right which is a really good example he's like well if you can do it perfectly then you can like find a way back to it and it's probably mm. expresses more what you want to say yeah yeah i mean i know i i didn't always write out my scripts the way i do now and i certainly mm -hmm. wouldn't say that every everyone has to always write out every single word of every trick they they do i think you have to have obviously like you mm -hmm. said a very you know good roadmap in your head of this is what i'm going to say here this is what i'm going to say there I, I don't have it all written out but i know this is what i do i think i think people just totally wing it oh yeah um that's that's probably not a, a good situation but but i think for me the reason i started writing out the scripts was because i realized that for me and i'm not saying that everyone should do it the way that i'm doing it but i um or the way um it's taught in some of the other lit in the literature on on the topic but i found that for myself i like and this is a person maybe some of its personality i like writing it out because it makes me really think about it and it's made me not only think about it more, but think about if I'm going to be speaking anyway, is there a better way to say it? Right. Is there a way that's more concise to the point and more powerful? Yeah, you and want, you that has fat. helped me do that. Hmm? You want no fat on the script. Yeah, yeah. And it's helped me because for me, I can get off on tangents. You may have noticed. Oh, really? but <laughs> but and that's not good in a performance right and uh i've never i've never done some 10 minute you know oh, like oh let me get back to the trick but <laughs> I, I i do know that i have a tendency to repeat myself mm. um i have a tendency to repeat myself i also have a tendency to repeat myself but uh, and i can i can i can go off on little tangents and that's I want, I, for me, I felt like that was, I need something to focus me a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And um, writing out my script has helped tighten that up and make what I'm saying worth something more than if I was just shooting off the hip uh, as much. So for me, that was a big deal. But the other thing I found is that when I sit down to write out the script, it's sometimes it's happened where I get a better idea because I'm forcing myself to sit there and think it through. And what am I going to say? And how am I going to say it? And then I go, Oh, but I could, I could totally do I've, I've actually sat down to write scripts. And then next thing I know, I've kind of taken the whole trick in a little bit different direction script wise than what I had sat down to write because I realized oh, I like this better. I think this oh, is yeah. a neater idea, not just a better way to say it, but a completely different mm. idea on how to present it. And um, I don't think I would have come to that without sitting down and going, mm. okay, I, it's kind of, it can be kind of hard work and, and, and not always fun to write out the scripts, but I found it to be a good creative exercise, it's kind of opened me up to new yeah. creative thoughts. 
So for me, that those are some probably like the two benefits. Mm. It's helped me keep on on target <laughs> in a performance, and then also it's opened up some creative avenues um, as well. So I think, yeah, that's been interesting. I wasn't expecting that second thing. It's just sort of yeah. I've seen over time that it's happened more than once, and I thought, oh, this is I actually valuable. So awesome. Yeah. Like when I'm writing uh, for Invisible Practice or for a blog or for my book, like an essay, and I think like, huh, what am I going to write about? And I get this little idea. I can have maybe have like 200 words. And after 100, I just like get this new idea, just start going off on a tantrum, just like 600 words. Where I'm like, okay, so this is a different essay now, but this is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I think creative writing is that way. And scripting is kind of a creative writing exercise in a way. Mm -hmm. And then, and then after that, you know, you put down everything you think you want to say, and then you figure out how to say it better, you know, yeah. and um, how to say it more directly. And I think that, man, I think, I think scripting the effects, you know, even if it's, you just have a firm mental script in your head that, mm. you know, you don't, not everyone's going to write down every script. I'm not saying that everyone even should, but but if you have the, the more defined, more, the more definition you have on that script, the more accuracy you have with the more mm-hmm. um, specific information you have for what you want to say, I think it does free you up in the moment to veer off and come back. But I also think it really helps you be in control mm-hmm. of your audience and of the, the, the time you have with them and where you want to take it. And uh, um, I've found that having my effects scripted um, has also helped with audience management, you know, with, <laughs> you know, not having people insert things in the middle of your performance that you, you don't really want there. Mm. And when I was doing restaurant magic, I did restaurant magic for two nights a week for, mm um for several hours each night for eight years before we moved to France and then I had done it sporadically before that ever since high school or no not high school early college and um one of the things that I found was very helpful when I started really writing out my scripts one of the things Mm -hmm. I noticed was I'm not getting interrupted the same way I'm not you know people are people are interacting with this a little bit differently I'm I feel more in control of, of how this performance is going in a situation that can, you know, it's close up, it's at a restaurant, you know, people are just goofing off. Um, but why do you think that it is? I think it is, I think it's because I'm saying something interesting. Mm-hmm. I've given it enough thought that it's interesting and compelling and it's theatrical mm-hmm. and people get a sense that they're watching something real and not just having someone come up and do something. Mm-hmm. They're watching, they're watching a performance and um, not that it's a cold distance between them. Like they're watching a, a movie. I mean, I'm right there with them. So it's personable, mm-hmm. but it's also, I have a very definite uh, presentation. I have a very definite mm-hmm. thing I'm doing. And I'm there being a part of it. And I'm, and we're all doing this together, but you know, there's no insecurity for them mm. either. They, they're hopefully they feel like I'm in good hands. 
this person is competent. They know what they're doing. This is entertaining and it's interesting. And, and if, and if you go in and you have, and you're just kind of like, Hey, I want to show you a car trick, you know, and um, you get into it and you see you're stammering and you, you know, you don't, and it feels very much like, you know, mm. where is this going to land? Um, that the audience is going to start taking control of that situation because oh, yeah. somebody needs to be in control of that situation, right? I mean, it's the, they don't necessarily want to be a part of something that's not going somewhere. So <laughs> I think it's an insecure, it's an insecure mm. feeling. Mm. And I think audiences, I think um, audiences are vulnerable in a performance setting. They aren't the one um, who's in control. Mm. Um, they don't necessarily want to be in control, but they do mm. want there to be control. They want parameters on it, right? They want mm. um, not for it not to be chaos. And I think if you go in and you present yourself confidently and a script helps you present yourself confidently, or at least a plan, you're like, mm. I know what I'm gonna basically say, mm. um, then that, alleviates that kind of tension for an audience and then you just don't really give them a lot of space to do it because mm -hmm. you know what you're saying you know the actions the timing of everything is happening in a in a way and you're you're talking with them and you know what you're going to say to them and you know what you're going to just say and you know when it's going to happen that when that all comes together like that they feel secure they don't they don't feel vulnerable like, I don't know what this crazy performer who I didn't even know existed until I sat down at my restaurant table is going to do, you know, that's a kind of a, you know, like, oh, you're here. Oh yeah, sure. You can, you can do some magic. Oh my gosh. And then they start, you know, they, if you don't show them, Hey, this is going to be good. This is going to be okay. I'm taking, I'm going to take good care of you. If they feel like it's chaotic and, and they don't know, boy, that's, they're in a vulnerable position, an awkward position. So I think, man, I think uh, that really communicates a lot to them being able to be a confident, well-spoken performer. And, and then the script just doesn't give them a lot of space mm. to inject a lot of extra stuff anyway. And then there's not, like I said, they're not motivated to because they're having fun. They're watching it. It's controlled. Mm. It's secure. It's not they don't feel vulnerable and uh, oh gosh. So, um, so for me, I found that, that, that has been uh, a true thing. Now, having said that I have zero experience performing for drunk people. I mean, mm -hmm. the restaurants I worked in weren't ones where people have already had cocktails and they're having something with their, their meal or it's at, you know, it's a cocktail party mm -hmm. or something like that. These were, I had very few experiences working with, with tipsy or right, you know full-on full-on drunk people so i i'm not speaking to that maybe in that kind of context your script is it doesn't matter if you're scripted or not because if they're going to be nuts they're going to be nuts right <laughs> um I, I don't know maybe maybe it does help in those situations too but uh for me in the situations i've been in you know the people were in their complete normal frame of mind <laughs> and uh and the the performances I did before I started really scripting things and how it changed as I was scripting things more and had a very much more of a sense of, you know, what I, what I wanted to say in a much more concrete way. Uh, it was just night and night and day, you know, they weren't bad performances before they weren't bad. It wasn't like I was getting into arguments with people or having people try to ruin my magic. 
but I did notice that there was a change. There was a difference. There was, uh, you know, there was a, a lot more. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the, when it really clicked for me. This was, I was, I was I, uh, before I moved to France, I was living in West Virginia mm. and I was performing at a restaurant in rest, I performed at two restaurants there for like eight years, like I said, at the same restaurants mm. um, and two nights a week. And, um, you know, in that context, I was trying out a lot of new material mm. and I was creating a lot of new material. And um, I was using the restaurant as a place to try it out, you know, and uh, not and, and, and uh, you know, I was doing a lot of my normal stuff and mixing it in. So it wasn't just going in there. But some of those things I did not have. It all worked out. You know, I was feeling it out. I was trying it out. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't always polished. Um, uh, the way it is, you know, after 300 performances or whatever and, and writing out a script, I would, some of these things weren't even completely scripted. You know, I kind of had an idea, but I didn't know really what I wanted to say. And um, and so that was fine and everything. And I did it with the moderation. You know, I still had all my, you know, my my go to stuff, but I would put these things in and it was a great place to do it. But I did notice that as I got the script more, you know, and refined the routine and had a real good idea of where the script was going and worked more on, no, this is exactly how I want to say it. The audience attention and the audience's reactions were, were getting stronger. Mm. As, as I refined that, the audience reactions got stronger. And um, one, there was one trick that was like that where I had been performing it and performing it. And, um, you know, at first I just had just the barest, idea of the scripting and the direction I wanted to take it, you know, with the, with the presentation and um, it got good reactions and stuff. But then I started, you know, I finally got to the point where I walked in one night and I had worked on the script. Mm. I had nailed it. I'd practiced, rehearsed it, all the things. And I had it really the way I still perform it to this day. And I walked in and I did it at the first table I went to. And this guy who wasn't a local guy, um, cause they, they knew me. The local people, you know, of course, would come in and see me all the time, but he didn't. He was just someone passing through. The restaurant was right on the interstate, so that was pretty normal. People would stop by, and then, you know, who knows where they're from. But he came in, and uh, I performed for him. And this is rural West Virginia, and I performed my script for him, and you know, my, the, the presentation, the whole trick. And the thing he said to me, he looks at me, he goes, he looks around, and he's like, he knows he's in rural West Virginia, you know, and just in the mountains he's like why are you here and the the point he was making was when and i don't agree with him for all my friends in west virginia i don't <laughs> don't agree with him but he his whole thing is you're doing this here why are you here you should you should be somewhere else where you can you know uh get famous or something you know, and I'm not saying that my trick was worth that kind of adoration, mm. you know, but, but I presented it well and it mm. was a good trick. Right. Mm. And is it, it fooled him. It amazed him. It was scripted. Well, it was tight. It was strong. 
uh, my words lent to it being a strong effect? And his response was, why are you here doing this? Because this is, that was, I, what, I, what he was saying was like, that was professional. What, what are you, I wouldn't, why are you doing that here? You know, and, um, and once again, I don't agree with him. I, I, I was there because it's where I lived and all my, my friends were there. My, I, you know, people I love dearly there and I love the community and I was very happy living in mm. rural West Virginia and who knows, maybe someday I'll live there again. Uh, it's great, great people, everything. And I was more than happy to work doing my magic at the most professional level I could in family restaurants in rural West Virginia. Why not? But, but for his, his, his reaction to it was an interesting one. And it's always stuck with me, not because I think, Oh, I was so, I was so great. And yes, you're right. I should be, you know, it's a famous magician. I, I, I'm not looking for that. I'm not trying to be that, but, um, but it did teach me something. And what it taught me was really working on these presentations and having it down and having it and trying to craft my words or whatever I'm doing to be the, the most powerful, not necessarily the most dramatic, like everything's heavy. It could be mm. powerful and funny, you know, or mm. powerful and that the words I'm saying go so well with what I'm doing that it doesn't detract from it. It only makes it better. And it only points out the things that are the most important for them to walk away with. And, and or the great, you know, the greatest effective, the most effective way for them to get the whole general mm. vision for what I'm trying to do artistically or whatever. And um, so it really did, his reaction really taught me that it kind of validated the work. I'm like, no, this work does, it really does matter to do this. It's paying off for me at least in that um it does it made a big difference in it and uh, i thought that was just an interesting example of of that really that really got it's how it drove it home to me that this was a, a path to keep going down and um i mean maybe he says that to everybody i don't know <laughs> Why are you I, here? Certainly, I, I certainly have had my share of people not saying that so I, I stay in the real world here, but, but it was really, it was really nice thing to say, but it was also like, yeah, okay. I'm going to keep doing this scripting thing. I think it's paying off, mm. you know, um, to a higher level than I'd ever done before. Cause I, like I said, I mm. learned kind of from Tarbell and always, not always, but after my first couple magic shows, you know, in the basement of a building, with, <laughs> you know, I, when I was a teenager, I thought, man, I need to have something to say and, and have, have a better idea of it. Cause the first show mm -hmm. was pretty rough. The first magic show I ever did was pretty rough. I mean, really? the tricks wow. were okay, but the second magic show I ever did, I did as Ted um, from Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. So I had this, I had a wig <laughs> and a vest and I was like, Oh man, radical, you know, and I'm talking like, I can't believe it. I can't <laughs> believe I just admitted that. Thankfully, there's no video or pictures, but yes, I, I did a whole magic show as Ted from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which at the time was a pretty, you know, a popular movie and everything, but mm -hmm. wow, yeah, that was, that was, it was excellent, that's what it was, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> uh, 
But I did the card in orange for the first time in that oh, show, and it's still really? in my repertoire to this right. day. I love that trick. And I learned it from Tarbell. I still use the mm. method, one of the methods taught in Tarbell. Yeah. Nice. Have you ever yeah. seen the, the Larry Jennings one? I Well, I've never seen it. I read it in his, mm. that little pamphlet he has. Yeah, I forget yeah, the what the name of that. Classics, uh... Neoclassics, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I studied it in that book years and years ago, but I've never seen anyone perform it. But I've always wanted to because I read it and I'm like, this is pretty cool. I like this. I didn't, I've never tried to perform mm. it that way. I've stuck with the Tarbell, the version in Tarbell, but, but. Um, it's one of anyway. the things you will, you will see someone do, so. Yeah. Oh, that would be, that would be cool. I'm sure I was in my mind when I was reading, it, I thought this would be so epic to see so someone do this trick. Close to that the so earth cool. turns into an orange. orange yeah. Opening the card is inside. Like what? Yeah. I was like, that's just so cool. That's just really cool. Yeah. I, what I like about a tar bell, have you ever done the card in orange? You know, the tar bell one that I'm no, talking I, about. I haven't, with I haven't read it. Like I've, I've, I'm, I'm working on the one from Neo Classics because yeah. I want to put that. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. then when you do, when you when you get it video worthy, you know, shoot me a video because I right. really want to see someone perform it. That would be so cool. But the the Tar Bell one I like because um, it's just a lot of stuff going on. You have a spectator holding the handkerchief with the piece in it. They can feel the piece. You know the pieces, and you whisk it out of their hand and they've disappeared and. They're in, you know, it's in the orange and I'll put back together and on stage, you can play that really big, you know, and I've used it for kids. I've used it for adults. So it's one of those things you can use mm. for, for just about any, any age audience or, mm. you know, family audience, anything. And, um, and you can get people up on stage to help you. One's holding a knife, one's holding the, mm. the, the thing and all the stuff. And that's, it's really cool. I, I totally, uh, I got a reputation when I was in college, I got a reputation for doing that one. And so one day in the dorm, uh, one of my friends was like, dude, people are coming overnight. Uh, you gotta do the orange, do the orange, do the orange. And I'm like, I don't know, you know, I don't know. And he's like, dude, it's okay. I already bought you an orange. And so we can use my orange. And I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm not really a magician. <laughs> you know, I'm not actually a wizard. <laughs> but I didn't tell him that. I just, you know, obviously he had no idea what the method is, you know. But mm. he's just like everyone was like, the, the orange trick. You got to do the orange trick. We got people coming over night and we're gonna do this orange trick. So I bought you one already, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is how in the world. So thankfully, it was about five hours until the the show. Mm. and um and i told him i said well i need the orange i need the orange to be you know really fresh because then you know if it starts getting mushy or anything you know i was like could you could you just go drop it in the kitchen refrigerator and just you know and then bring it out when it's time and he's like oh yeah no problem so he takes it and throws it into the kitchen refrigerator and i just waited till everyone left and then i grabbed it and did what i needed to do and put it back you know and then and then at the time you know when i finally performed it that night he was like i bought that myself i bought it myself i it's never been out of my sight it's i got it for I, no i bought it and they're like you really bought it and he's like yeah you know <laughs> it was, so that was pretty good at that point at that point, i don't think i can ever perform this here again because it's now legendary status you know and i you know i'm so oh, yeah. 
I kind of retired it. I just didn't even mm. mention the orange trick for the rest of my college days because I was like, they're going to start buying oranges and having me do it like three minutes later. Like, oh, and here's the orange. Now do the trick. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. you know, so. Um, and I didn't really want to walk around with prepared orange in my pocket all day long, every day, just in case somebody, you know, threw an orange at me and said, switch the orange completely brown. You got like, ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. Oh no. That's a transforming, you know, look, it's a perfect orange. Now it's all moldy. I transformed it. It's, it's a transformation. So yeah, that was orange pretty brown. funny, but, but, uh, but that, that tar bell method in there is excellent. One time. Uh, I was on a trip. We were on a trip. Uh, we were driving cross country around across the United States, me and my wife. And we had a couple of our kids. We didn't have all of our kids at that point. We have four kids. But um, at that point, we had like two. And um, so anyway, we were visiting friends and doing different things. And I didn't have the handkerchief with mm -hmm. me. I lost it somewhere on the road trip. And, uh, and uh, you know, I it's kind of like one of those things where like all my friends know I do the orange trick. And then I would go over to their house and because they're like, Oh, we're in town, you know, and um, we've been out of the country for a while. And now we're in town and um, yeah, come on over. And I got people coming over and you can show us some magic. I'm like, Oh, sure. Right. And they're like, do the orange trick. I'm like, Oh, okay. And so that was that evening. And I'm like, what am I gonna do? Cause I don't even have my handkerchief. And you know, of course the handkerchief is specially prepared so you can do the, the, the vanish of the, the pieces, right? And um, so I thought, oh no. So I did have a handkerchief with me and it had, what it had was, was a tag on, the, on, the, on one, one of the sides, just like a tag that was like a, um, just from the store. It just had, you know, like the washing instructions on it. But it was the loop of material that was sewn, right? Sewn into the hem of the, the handkerchief. And I thought, oh, maybe I can do this. So I cut up some, some card and I got some double stick tape and I just stuck that inside the loop of the, um, uh, the loop of the, the, the washing instructions. And it made it work. And then I just folded that up into the thing. And so they thought they were holding the, uh, you know, the pieces of the card. And it totally worked. So just if anyone does the orange trick out there listening to this, the Tarbell, you know, version of that, and you ever find yourself without a handkerchief, like your special handkerchief, that is a method. And it did work. It went over just fine. No one thought anything about it. And uh, I was able to pull it off at the time. And they let me, you know, I'm like, oh, I'll pick up an orange on the way. Oh, great. So that was a little bit easier on the orange, mm -hmm. but I had the handkerchief problem. So, um, Anyway, so those are my orange, card and orange stories um, of various times where things didn't quite look like it wasn't going to work out very well for me, but I was able to pull it out anyway. <laughs> this is a great trick. Oh, it's such a good trick. Yeah. It would be great to see the Larry Jennings thing with a pineapple. Oh, the pineapple? Oh, yeah. <laughs> card and pineapple. <laughs> wow that could be that would be cool i has you have you seen anyone ever do card and pineapple i have is that a thing no i don't think it is because <laughs> man it should be a thing that would be cool no. so we got we got money and kiwis really large knife on stage so. <laughs> yeah we have money and kiwis and cards and oranges and cards and lemons and money and lemons 
but yeah, haven't seen any much. I don't know. I'm not aware of much magic with a with a. Although I think I think John Carney has a trick in one of his books, not his newest in, uh, book, book, but of Secrets. One. Yeah. Yeah, the Book of Secrets. He's got a trick in there where he takes a trip to Hawaii oh, yeah, yeah. and he produces he produces a um, a pineapple, a real pineapple, as part of that. Which I I've always wanted to do that routine. I've read it several times. <laughs> I'm like, oh man, yeah, that, that's so cool. And the next thing you know, he's got sunglasses and stuff on his nose and a lay around his neck, and he produces a pineapple. I'm like, that's that just sounds like fun. So. You know which trick I always wanted to do from that book the the egg the magazines of egg. Oh yeah, I tried that from that book actually. Really? I, I I did all the stuff and followed his instructions and created the egg, you know, mm -hmm. and everything. And it just didn't look quite right. And I didn't take enough time to really master master making that egg. And I think um, uh, I probably could have gotten better at it if I mm -hmm. kept doing it. But but I did play around with it and I liked it. But then. I don't know why, but I just never, you know, really pursued it to a place mm. where I would ever be able to perform it. But it was fun to mess with, for sure. Oh, yeah. I, I had a good time doing that. Have you tried to make the egg and do all the... No, I still have to find a duck egg. It's a bit more difficult where I live. Yeah, I I don't think I used a duck egg, which was probably part of my problem. <laughs> I I used a, just a an egg from the grocery store. Yeah, because chicken egg. Like a duck egg is supposed to be like more firm with the membrane. Yeah. Yeah, the main brim is probably thicker or something, mm -hmm. maybe. Yeah, I, I know I I know I didn't use the right egg, but I'm like, I don't have a duck egg, but I got a chicken egg, so this is gonna work. <laughs> and it did, but it didn't work as as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So probably I need to go find a, a duck egg, try it again someday. <laughs> but I don't know. It's Man, a beautiful effect though. It is. Uh, there's um. At the session a couple years ago, there was a performer who did a beautiful version of the egg on the fan, and 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 he has some, I guess, some really good work on how to make the egg, and he's got a great routine. It's in, oh man, I forget his name, which ben is Hart. A, I'm a, hmm? Ben Hart. Yes, that's it. And his book is called something with dark or dark I, oh, no, no. something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't have to look it up. It's a van, you know, Vanishing Ink has it, you know, they put it out. So they would have exactly. this book. But yeah, it was Ben Hart. And I, I don't really remember the, the name of the book, but but yeah, he had a beautiful watching, like, you, can, you, you can also see him do it in his uh, Britain Got Talent auditions. Oh, OK. All right. So yeah, so I'm sure that all easy to find on the internet sort the book, like the source, a, I think and like he performance. Has this thing where he has like this, like multiple pieces of paper with like a word written on it, and then someone picks the word like egg, and he scrambles it up, and then on the like on the yeah. front of the paper turns into an egg. Very clever routine, very fun, and he he did it does it beautifully, of course, mm -hmm. and um, that is that is a cool routine and a cool just. I've always liked that idea. I've seen, I think I saw so McBride, Jeff McBride do it one time, you know, on a video or something to do that. The egg on fan. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's never done it. And I'm <laughs> mishmashing a bunch of people in my head, but um, that it is a really cool effect when it, when you have a good, really realistic looking egg and everything it just, it just I happens. Think this was like like the, the only time I can remember recently or recently, like within the past five years when I was magic on video and I was in front of my computer, like, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's a really magical transformation. 
Mm. It's, and then, and then of course it ends up in an egg, which is, you know, which is cool. And then also it's really symbolic. So I think the mm. audience, you know, there's a, sim, a symbolism going on there that's interesting to to think about. Um, you know, there's kind of a creation, the implied creation of life. Mm from an inanimate object to something that contains life. Exactly, yeah. Which is an interesting, you know, that's a powerful image and Mm. kind of one of those archetypal sort of concepts, Mm. you know, that um, everyone can grasp. I mean, you can do that to music and everyone can grasp that. Maybe not, maybe they don't think of it like, oh, look, it's an inanimate object becoming life symbol of life but in somewhere in their bodies i believe some of that resonates maybe for some people more than others but i think there's something there yeah yeah emotionally there's something there that is resonating with a a bigger idea Mm -hmm. and and just how did that paper turn into an egg there's Oh, definitely. There's a bigger, a meta, there's a meta story overlaying that, you know, that's But I can't remember the same, like uh, Tamaris in the Magic Rainbow, I think. Yeah, the Magic Rainbow. Yeah, Magic Describing Rainbow. about the egg bag and that he mm. also tried to do it with ping pong balls and with tennis balls and other things. And mm. the people reacted best to the egg because, well, yeah. first of all, they know it's like it can break, but also he thought it was probably the symbolic value. Yeah, just like I think. points across work better with different amounts of points. Yeah. 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 I think that, he, I think that, um, he's right. I, I do. I didn't always think that I have changed over the years, you know, when I was, a, when I was a new in magic, mm. you know, what I would see, um, what I saw from time to time, not all the time, I didn't really see a lot of live magic when I was growing up, but I did see a couple times people doing gospel magic and you know they try to this represents this and this represents this and this you know and things like that and I honestly always absolutely detested it I just I I hated it um one I don't think most of the time it was performed well like it wasn't even performed well so so there's that trying to force meaning onto someone but I've been trying to force meaning onto it um I think is a very hard thing to do. I'm not saying that no one can put extra layers of meaning on a, on something, but when you start getting into, and this represents this, and this represents that, and this, you know, it's just starts getting, feels really convoluted. And I am not sure I've ever seen anyone do that really well. Mm. I think that it is very, if, if it can be done well, I'm very sure I don't, I've never really seen it in that way. And then I think it's very, very, very hard to do. I imagine very few people could really do it. And it would have to be really scripted and so thought out. And I just don't, I've never seen an example of that. I think it's much more powerful when it's, when it's implied, Mm. like, you know, you know, like with Eugene Berger's, the cosmic thread, you know, his, he's had several presentations for it, but the cosmic thread idea, you know, mm. and it all, it's all destroyed and it's all reborn. He doesn't have to say this string is like the cosmos. And then, you know, no, but that's it's, also wonderful about it because then you, then your head doesn't go like, no, it's not. It's a fucking string, you idiot. But it's, right. Right. And it, you don't have to, you don't have to, 
do all that and people get it you know it's something that was torn and that was restored and he's telling his story but he's showing something visually that goes along with the story but he's not you know going that extra step to spell it out this represents this and this represents that you know and um i think when you get into that kind of stuff it can, can get really hard and i'm not even i'm not picking on gospel magicians because i've know, seen but... other people try it with mm. you know i think sometimes people who do corporate magic you know they're doing you know the the trade yeah. shows yeah, yeah you know i think they can have some of those same problems so i'm not, mm. I'm not picking on any particular group at all i'm just saying in my experience i that was one way I saw that kind of thing happen. And I just have never thought it was done well. It's just, I think it's really hard. I, I think even if it's, even if it's what's being said and put on it is consistent with kind of like the inner symbolic message of it, you know, like if you tore something and restored it, you know, people are, I think humans are pattern making creatures and, mm. and, um, metaphor we make metaphors all the time and we see mm -hmm. connections between symbols symbolic things and our life and the lives mm -hmm. of people around us and we just do it our brains do it so i don't think you have to, to mm -hmm. force that on it but then it, then you know sometimes i thought it went further than that where people weren't just spelling out what was obvious in front of them mm -hmm. um as if the audience couldn't figure out that when you're talking about death and resurrection or something that something that's been torn is restored that you've kind of seen that in a visual way you know <laughs> um you know and they have to spell it out for you it's kind of insulting but i think people just can figure that out on their own just by seeing it mm. and making their own metaphor you know realizing that but sometimes i thought it went even further down a bad trail where it seemed like what they were trying to say and put on the trick kind of trampled on the inherent symbolism or the inherent metaphors that an audience would make in just watching it. Mm. Um, and it made it all muddy, you know, and it didn't actually do anything to accentuate the, what was already there. It's kind of like stepping on mm. it or making it convoluted. And um, I think that's tragic because I do think I, I, like I said, I, when I was younger, I didn't think this and I was really put off by the idea of, of symbolism imagine there being like an i didn't know the word at the time archetype i didn't know that mm -hmm. kind of idea but um you know these kind of universally understood metaphors that you know because of our life experiences we can relate to the desire to see something that's been destroyed be restored or the desire to see two things that are not linked to be linked to or um things that are separated to be put back together or those kind of things you know uh, we can as humans we have desires for those types of things in our lives so that it relates and we create those metaphors naturally i didn't i was put off by that idea from seeing these kind of things that were kind of forcing it and kooky and and bad and not even good magic mm -hmm. and not you know and so for a while for a long while i just kind of like no i'm just not even going there you know <laughs> just forget that and i think that over time it started to change. I think one of the things that probably helped me with that was seeing performers like Eugene Berger and, and things way back, you know, when I first started in magic and I kind of like, I got the tar bell set and then like the next 
the next thing I picked up, at least that I remember, you know, this was, you know, 30 something years ago, mm. but, um, you know, I remember being in the magic shop and, and seeing this, I didn't know what a Eugene Berger was, you know, but this was one of his original booklets. Right. And, uh, I'm like, dude, who's that? Who's the dude with the beard? Cause that's like pretty dope, you know? And, uh, so I was like, uh, I'm going to pick this one up. And I picked it up and I started reading it and like, it blew my mind. I'm like, this dude is like the deal. Mm. Like he's taking magic seriously and it's meaning seriously. And like, it's started changing my, my thinking. And of course, and I picked up mm. his other intimate power and then all of his other things and, um, and stuff like that. And of course, um, I, I, you know, owe a lot of my thinking on magic. I recognize a lot of it to, to what he was written mm -hmm. over time and stuff, but he started changing my thoughts on that. And then I went to the mystery school mm. um, uh, when it was back in, the, I think it was 1994, 1995, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went to one of those and met Eugene and Jeff McBride. And, you know, we, we did the mystery school thing and it was, I wasn't ready for it. I was like mind blown. I was, I was just like this innocent little doe eyed, you know, <laughs> like I, I didn't know what was going on. Man. So um, it was a great experience though, but I was, you know, one of the things that I did take away from it was um, I took a lot of good things away from it. Um, but even though my mind was totally blown at the time, mm -hmm. but um one of the things I did take away from it is like, maybe I, I need to rethink some of what I was, these things that I've kind of, kind of closed off, mm. you know, like maybe, maybe I threw out the baby with the bathwater, as they say, mm. you know, I did see some, I, I saw some junky stuff. I saw some stuff that had definitely skewed my thinking away from it, but maybe that wasn't completely what I should have done. You know, maybe I shouldn't mm. have thrown it all out. Uh, maybe there is something there. So I started really thinking about symbolism and metaphor and archetypes and studying it and thinking about it. And I have come to the conclusion now that there, that I think that, that at least a lot of magic, but really maybe all of it on some level has certain meta stories, certain mm. symbolic meanings that most humans pick up at least mm. subconsciously, right. if not, more overtly and so now i really look i really take that seriously when i'm looking at a magic trick i look what is the what's the story what's the what's like the metaphor what's what's really going on in this piece or what are the things that this could really say to somebody you know like a card stab um yeah i wrote a book on the card stab it's a really uh, sharp sharp book but I didn't really talk about this in there. I, I probably, if I ever revise it, I'll, I'll, I'll need to put a, some, uh, a, some, uh, some thoughts some comments down or an essay or something mm -hmm. about the symbolism in it more. Cause I really didn't talk about it in there, but I think there's some real deep symbolism and some stuff people get inside of the card stab routine. So what symbolism and, uh, do you think there is in that routine? Hmm? What kind of symbolism do you think there is in that routine? Oh, well, I think that one of the powerful ones is that something lost being found mm. because that's a powerful um, a metaphor and people understand the desire to find things that are lost mm. and um, maybe not just physical things, but people, um, relationships, 
or all kinds of things and um, things that they didn't want to lose, uh, but are lost and then finding them and how special and important that is and what joy comes from when you find something you've lost, you know, mm-hmm. and um, it could be a really profound thing. And you can, you can do things to encourage people during a magic a performance of a card stab, since we're using that example. Um, but with the card stab, one of the things that I don't think is done a lot, which in the book, I try to, you know, one of the things that I really work hard on is making sure the person is utterly convinced that that card is completely lost because it's really an impossible location effect. Mm. Card stabs at its best is an impossible location effect. So, so in my version, they, they get to shuffle the cards as much as they want. And then they wrap it in a napkin themselves without me touching the deck. And then, then the card gets stabbed to through the, through the napkin. That's one of the versions. And, um, you know, you can, you don't have to say, and the, the card that's lost is like something that you've lost. I mean, that would just be stupid, right? And insulting. Um, but you can say things in a script that lead people to think mm-hmm. more about it metaphorically than they, I mean, I think people do make those connections on their own, but you can, mm-hmm. you can kind of set the stage for them and invite them to do that, mm-hmm. you know, without it being some big, you know, like, I'm not going to tell you, I'm going to tell you what to think, you know? Um, you can just kind of lay it, lay the groundwork and just kind of lay it out there and let them encourage them to create the, the metaphor that's obviously there and, in, and feel it on some personal level. Yeah. So I think that's one of the strong ones in the card stab for sure. And it's, I, I think it's, uh, the, end, like the, the most powerful story is the one they tell themselves. Right. Yeah. And so, um, so I think that Tamariz and, you know, uh, you know, the, uh, the other artists that have really, that and that I know of that have really embraced that and stuff. Mm. I think that I think they're right. I've come to the conclusion that I do believe very strongly mm. in that. I know that other people don't see it that way, mm. and that's fine. But for me, I have come to the conclusion that those things are worth thinking about when you're creating presentation for an effect, mm. and at least not ignore. At least. You don't, it doesn't have to be in the, you don't have to set a stage where you're trying to make them think of some metaphorical thing, but at least consider it as you're trying to understand what is this effect I'm trying to present? What is this effect that I'm trying to perform? And, you know, what do I, what do I expect audience to take away from it? Um, what do I want them to take away from it? One is it's going to be autobiographical. It's going to say something about me, mm. but what can they, what else what else is there? What other possibilities are there? And I, and I think that you, you have laughter and comedy and all those things and still have um, an invitation for them to consider it mm-hmm. metaphorically on some level. Or um, There's different mechanisms for doing that in a presentation, I think. Um, ways to do it that are subtle, you know, not mm-hmm. <laughs> like, okay, now think this. So, but I think one of the really good books um, for this, if someone wants to really read about magic and meaning, is the Magic Rainbow because there's mm. that book has the most uh, the most detailed discussion of of symbolism and archetypes than of mm. any of the magic books I know. That you know, um, I think that book's got a very good systematic kind of listing of those kinds of oh, things yeah. and stuff, and so that's that's really valuable. 
And then the other book I would say is Magic and Meaning by Eugene mm -hmm. Berger and, and a Bob Neal. I think um, that's a very, it's a fascinating book. Oh yeah. It will make you think. Um, you don't have, I mean, obviously you don't have to agree with everything, a conclusions they come to. And like Bob Neal says, they don't even agree with each other all the time, but uh, in the same, in the book, but, um, but uh, it's a great book. It's hard to find in hardback now. It's not in print, but you can get an ebook version, the expanded version of it as an ebook. Um, so you can do some research online. I think it's at um, Jeff McBride's, um, website, um, magical wisdom. I think, mm. I think that's where you can pick up a copy of it. It's either that or at Lawrence, Lawrence Haas's theory and art of magic. Um, one of those two, you can buy, you can purchase a PDF of it, an ebook. And that's, it's, and that's the expanded version. So there's an extra chapter mm. at the end where an in interviews and stuff like that, that came out, you know, years later. And, um, that book is just, I've probably read that book like five times <laughs> since it came out. I got it when it came out. Um, actually, that's that's how I know which mystery school I was at because I bought it at the mystery school. Uh, and uh, Eugene signed it. So yeah, he's 1995. So there's his signature on there. But that's when, when I got it. So it was 1995 when I was at the mystery school. And uh, it was funny because Eugene goes, hey, you should go get Bob Neal to sign it too. And for some reason at the time, like I said, I was just like, I just was so like overwhelmed by the whole experience. I was like, I don't know, Eugene, uh, maybe. And then I, in my head, I was like so intimidated by Bob Neal that I wouldn't go up and have him sign it. I could have had this book signed by Bob Neal and Eugene Berger, but I was a wimp. And I was like, I just can't, I couldn't do it. So anyway, but I had been, I had been, um, uh, writing Eugene by that point for, for several years, for several years, we had a, we wrote back and forth and sent him some tricks and um, he sent me some stuff in the mail every now and then and things like that. And so we had a, a cool thing. And then I moved to Paraguay and I like, I like stopped, um, you know, uh, we just stopped writing. I stopped. I just kind of disappeared for a while there in, in Paraguay. But that's another story for another day because I, I think I've been talking Paraguay too long as it is. Huh? What happens in Paraguay stays in Paraguay. <sighs> yes, at the moment, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if we anyway. get you some beers, then. Uh... <laughs> so, anyway. But, yeah. Magic and Meaning. I'd highly recommend that book as well. That, that's one of my other five books. It's a, a scripting magic and magic and meaning by Robert Neal and Eugene Berger. Definitely worth worth it. It's a great book. Yeah. Thank you but, uh, so much for being here. Yeah, thanks. And I really enjoyed it. And I hope I didn't over talk, but I have a tendency to do that. I could listen to you talk for hours. So. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no gosh. <laughs> But, uh, but no, it's totally enjoyable. Uh, obviously, I love, you know it, I love hanging out with you, Rico, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm so glad we were able to do that today. And, um, you know, hope to see you soon. Hope to see you soon. In person again. <laughs> I hope so too. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks. See you later.